Welcome everyone to the Cajun Strong Style Podcast, the game 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles' exclusive pro wrestling podcast. Hopefully you enjoyed the wrestling over the last few weeks. We've been gone for a while, but we are getting back into it as we approach year number three officially underway. This is kind of considered to be the unofficial start of the Cajun Strong Style Podcast on this Memorial Day and boy, oh boy, we've got a lot more to get to than I expected to get to heading into this past weekend. And of course, we start off with MJF, the biggest headline of this past weekend in pro wrestling. So for those who didn't necessarily pay all that much attention to what was going on behind the scenes, let me break it down for you. What happened with MJF and give you the quick timeline and rundown of all that's happened. So we go back to Saturday. It was the day of the big meet and greet over at Mandalay Bay in Las Vegas. And MGF, according to numerous reports and later confirmed, he no-showed it that afternoon. This also followed up by reports, people on Reddit, saying that he was at Mandalay Bay's casino, but was playing slots. Another side note, you had Samoa Joe no-show it as well, but that wound up being due to a scheduling conflict. Apparently, he was doing some VO for a video game, so that was a big reason why he wasn't able to be a part of that. So a little bit of schedule conflict there. This was more looking like just a blatant no-show, no-call. They tried contacting him and couldn't get him in. And people were saying that security crew for AEW and everybody else around Mandalay Bay was shoot pissed about it because it's a whole ordeal to have somebody no-show an event like that the night before what is, without a doubt, one of your biggest pay-per-views of the year, if not their WrestleMania, in a sense. I know probably All Out's considered to be more of their WrestleMania. It's a debate we can have down the road. But that happens. Then around like 8 o'clock, I believe, the reports come out on top of this. Again, it was a long Saturday night for yours truly. Kind of keeping tabs on everything because it was insane to see everything that was going down. And he booked a flight out to Newark, according to reports, around 8 o'clock. But it looks like he had booked it like about 20 minutes before the meet and greet, according to Sean Ross Sapp of Fightful. But a lot like Rachel in the last episode of Friends, he didn't get on the plane and decided to stick around for the show. And then we started to hear a little bit more. Obviously, they had the match. And we'll talk about it more in a little bit. We do our full AEW Double or Nothing review but Sean Ross Sapp, during his post-show on YouTube last night, mentioned that he got in touch with MGF, and MGF responded to him and said he showed up just before the event began, wrestled the opening match, and left shortly after the match ended, and also says he is going dark. He's not going to do anything. He's not going to say anything. He's going to be kind of keeping to himself for a little while. And during the post-media scrum, outside of throwing all kinds of shade on Eric Bischoff, which is going to be a conversation I think we have further down the road about that. Tony Khan refused to answer any questions about MGF, which was done more to do the old CYA, cover your ass more than anything. Because at the end of the day, you don't want to say anything that is recorded in front of all these media members that are going to be transcribing every single word you say. I think this is something that's going to be handled solely behind the scenes, as it should be. Because it could have just been, hey, it's an internal issue. We're handling it, treating it like it's a college football program. Because I've seen that a lot as somebody who's covered college football and really like levels of college athletics in general, where 
if somebody's in trouble and if they don't necessarily want to say anything about it, there's a say it's being handled internally. And that's usually meaning a suspension of some kind or some sort. I'm sure it's going to be more the same for Tony Khan. Then PW Insider put out a report that MGF is being taken off the road for at least the next couple weeks, if not longer. And I think that's justifiable. That way, maybe they can hash this stuff out. Because, again, a lot of this definitely roots into his contract dispute with Tony Khan. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But it definitely hits on a lot of different angles that we've heard over the last couple months. The tension between these two. You can step away for a bit. Kind of get your head back in check. Because, obviously, it's been a while last few months for MGF. He has, without a doubt, one of the best matches of the year with CM Punk at um, uh, Revolution. My brain completely forgot what show that was back in February. It feels like almost 10 years ago sometimes. But he has that great match. He's putting on a really good storyline, paying off the Wardlow storyline after years of building that up. And there's a lot of things everybody's been saying all week, how it's a work. And I can understand a lot of that point of view, but I'm going to go ahead and throw out three reasons from my point of view why this is not a work and why, if you believe it's a work, you're a freaking mark, first of all. So, the first and biggest reason why this is a not a work is because why would you want someone who is such a top star and a hot commodity in the sport of pro wrestling and do a work no-show angle at a meet and greet where people forked over $100, if not more of their money, to meet that superstar? I understand TK's got money to blow and give the refunds and everything, but it creates a bad look from the fans' perspective because there's a lot of fans that probably wanted to meet him despite the fact that he is a heel, but it would piss off somebody like me if the guy that I paid that much money for, $100, to go see MGF no-shows that event, no-calls, all that stuff, and you can tell everybody else is pissed, it's going to wind up creating a bad taste in my mouth, and maybe I won't fork over that money to see another superstar akin to MGF. Let's just say a Samoa Joe or somewhere along that line. Now, if you have traffic issues, I it makes sense. But again, you had rumors pop up that MGF was playing slots at Mandalay Bay. Come on now. He couldn't have just gotten his ass over there. It, it's, it's not a great look for him. And, you know, it's not like MJF hates these meet and greets. You see videos all the time of him hamming it up and flipping off little kids and being the pretentious heel he plays on TV. And it's great because it's him. It's his character. He just turns it up to 11 even when he's away from the cameras. That would create more buzz about MJF versus Wardlow. This was one of the most highly anticipated matches on the card. And if MJF did go ahead and full shoot everybody and walked out, MJF wouldn't have that, Wardlow, excuse me, would not have that moment. And I'm sure it will wind up like souring a lot of people on AEW and make that locker room morale kind of crap in my book. The second reason is going back to what I was talking about. There has been a lot of tension between MGF and Tony Khan as they're in the middle of negotiating a new deal. All that we have heard is that Khan wants to re-sign MGF and give him what he's worth, but also lock him into a long-term deal, which is the smart way to go about it. And that's typically how contract extensions work. It's not like, oh, hey, we're just going to add an extra year in your contract. No, you have to kind of extend your extend a little bit longer and give him a really good deal to stick around. Same thing with Cody Rhodes to a certain extent. And I'm sure 
MJF wants to have what he wants, and that is to get paid what he's worth, but also have a shorter deal. That way, if he doesn't necessarily see things going a certain way, if he's not doing what he's expecting himself to do, like being AEW champion, then yeah, it's clear that he's going to want to bounce out. That's why he's not wanting to have a long-term contract with AEW. At least that's what it sounds like to me. And they're at an impasse. I mean, it's clear to see. Clear as day. Even Stevie Wonder could see that there is an impasse between these two. And it's not just that. It's the comments MGF's made not just on AEW programming, openly acknowledging the contract negotiations, openly acknowledging WWE and putting them over on podcasts like Barstool's Wrestling with Brandon Walker. It's casted somewhat of a negative light on the product and also put a dark cloud over MGF that's probably garnered him a ton of heat in the locker room, and it's not the good kind of heat. It's nearly the heat that would get you kicked out of the locker room back in the early 2000s if one JBL was around. And the third reason is, for me, it's a question. Why the hell would you work an angle like this and not give anyone advance notice about the work? If it's a work, some of the guys, the locker room leaders like FTR, CM Punk, the Bucks, Omega, they should all be absolutely pissed off at MGF and really start reconsidering what his future holds in this company. There's no reason why you should be working the boys at any time. And this would go down as one of the worst promotional tactics AEW's ever done, if not all of pro wrestling outside of the deal with Saudi Arabia. But that's besides the point. This whole mess took away from one of the better matches, one of the more intriguing matches that fans were invested in. I guarantee you, not many people were invested in probably 75% of the 13 matches on the main card of Double or Nothing. Guarantee that. People were invested in seeing MGF, the heel, the chicken bleep heel that everybody hates. Get his comeuppance. And MJF gets his ass beat by Wardlow. And it happened. It was a glorified squash match. I feel like some of that had to just do with the fact that MJF maybe didn't want to play ball for one reason or another, be it he didn't like the fact that it was the opening contest or the fact that he was going to get jobbed out. I don't know what it was, if he had any gripes, but he did the right thing. He played the game the right way, did the match, got his ass kicked, and left, as you should do if you have some problems. Now, the big question is, what happens with MGF after this sabbatical, hiatus, suspension, whatever you want to call What's going on with AEW's, one of their top heels in the business? My biggest thing is, I think he just pushed himself away from his crowning moment in AEW. Unless he plays his cards right and plays ball, and more importantly, regains the trust of Tony Khan. But that's going to take a lot more than I think the three months I think we could have gotten. Because I've said on this podcast before, I think I said it after Adam Page won the Texas death match against Adam Cole that I thought there was beyond a shadow of a doubt you were going to see MGF beat CM Punk in Chicago at all out to win the title to draw the maximum amount of heat. Now he's completely out of the AEW championship picture in my book and unless he plays his cards right maybe in a year from now. He's got I said in 2020 should have been AEW champion but wasn't the case. Now you have to either sit him down, have him kind of get his head screwed on right 
regain the trust of Tony Khan or you're going to be put on ice. Because Tony Khan, I think I would if I was an owner of a company and somebody pulled this kind of crap on me. I'd hold him as a liability instead of an asset for that company and no longer really trust him to be the top guy unless he shows me that he is willing to shut the hell up, put on his boots, and wrestle. That's not what MGF's been doing. He's been avoiding competition. He's not wrestling all that much, but he is absolutely rubbing people the wrong way. Now, does he become the next Barry Horowitz after this and be, be the job guy to the stars? No. But he won't get to the top of the card anytime soon after this. And I think his role is going to be changing significantly because he's such a great heel. He could be a really good gatekeeper for some of those guys that are, let's say, upper mid-card and need that just one last push to catapult themselves into the main event picture. Guys like Jungle Boy, guys like Darby. I think we could get a rematch with Darby down the road where he is trying to prove himself, and we'll talk about that more later. But right now, he feels like he could be the gatekeeper to the final boss of the AEW champion for the foreseeable future unless he really turns his act around. All right, let's get to the AEW Double or Nothing review. Waste no more time. Talk about the whole MGF situation, which is an absolute mess. I'm sure we'll find out more in the next few weeks. At least that we hope so. So we start off with a buy-in match. Tony Nese and Mark Sterling versus Hookhausen. They come out and immediately they're over like Rover. Dan Housen gets a huge pop from the Vegas crowd. Hook and Tony Nese start things off, and it's a really good, quick start to the match. Hook gets a quick double like takedown. Dan Housen winds up tagging in a little bit later. Gets some offense in after trying to curse Nice. He does curse Mark Sterling, though, which absolutely made me pop. Nice just absolutely hammer throws Danhausen into the corner, and he sold that thing. It looked rough as hell. And again, Danhausen is just coming off of a big injury. This is his second match in AEW. And Sterling actually had a really nice vertical suplex on Danhausen, but missed the leg drop. Nice snuffed out the hot tag momentarily. But Dan Housen winds up getting the big tag after hitting a really nice suplex. And Taz kind of says he tra- he's been training him up the last couple weeks. Sterling tags in and gets just demolished by Hook immediately. Big time suplex. And then Dan Housen gets tagged in. Massive pop. And then does the Chris Jericho basically stand on him. Put one foot on him. Do, do the Jericho pose in WCW. Really solid match. Pinfall victory. It's a Basic match, basic storytelling, didn't go too long. I'd give it two and a half links of Budam, but and it was still entertaining as hell. Had some comedy stuff in that. But again, when you have somebody like Mark Sterling and Danhausen, it worked really well. And hopefully we see D- Hookhausen do more stuff like this. At least it's what I would hope. And then maybe we get the feud between those two down the road. It's just a conversation we're gonna wind up having. Now we go to the opening contest of the main card, and this was a long-ass show. So you have MJF versus Wardlow. MJF's the first one out here, and he milked the hell out of the entrance, just waited for like that last possible second, because usually the music plays about 30 seconds, and they stop, run it back. No, he comes out. Everybody's booing the hell out of him the entire time. Then he gets in the ring. His po- does all his signature poses. His robe, by the way, was fantastic. 
with the whole better than you thing. And then he started running around like he was a plane and it immediately reminded me of the SmackDown versus Raw 2006. If you played the PSP version, you know about this. There was a mini game where Eugene's running around like an airplane, going down the entrance ramp and then around the ring. That's immediately what I thought about. I'm hoping people do know what I'm talking about because it's such an obscure part of the SVR games. Only if you got on the PSP, you know about this and playing poker with your favorite WWE superstars. Warlow comes out, huge pop, the Goldberg entrance, everything. He's got two handcuffs referencing what happened on Wednesday. And immediately after he walks in the ring, MJF runs out. He tries stinking attacking Wardlow. Wardlow no-sells it, teases the powerbomb. MJF just gets out of it, gets out of the ring. Wardlow tries another powerbomb, but MJF bites him. FU MJF chants are just ringing through. He fakes an injury to his knee, and while you know he's injured and they're, and they're sidetracked, the referee and Wardlow, MJF tries to take out the dynamite diamond ring, but nope, no soul is fooled there. Bryce takes it away from him. MJF continues his cowardly stick and tries to offer Wardlow four times as much money as he's currently paying him, but Wardlow, he shakes his hand, but keeps the grip. And then pulls them in. Powerbomb Symphony. Ten total powerbombs. Hit five. Put the foot on MGF. Then at two, takes it off. He's like, I'm not finished with you yet, pal. Hits five more for a total of ten for the win, which was great in and of itself. Two and a half Lisa Buddha. This was a glorified squash match and just barely kind of gotten to that threshold of like, okay, I'm just not going to rate this because you really can't say much about it. But the story being told, very basic, and it worked really well. The fact you have Wardlow continue to look like an absolute badass. After the match, MGF gets stretched out by the stretchered out, excuse me, by the medical crew, which I think this is the first time I've seen that in AEW. I could be completely wrong, just in terms of a strictly worked angle with a stretcher job. And <laughs> I don't know why, but the Paramedic, I guess, would be the right word. So he decides to just put the oxygen mask, oxygen mask, there we go, on his nose, but not his mouth. And it was like, this dude just did it completely ass backwards. What the hell's going on here? And it just made, the. it, it was a moment where you had to willfully just suspend disbelief. And as somebody who's watched Doctor Strange and Top Gun Maverick in the last like week and a half, yeah, I'm kind of done with suspending disbelief. I'll just go ahead and say that. But still, solid opener, and we got the right payoff here. Then we get to the second match of the night. Young Bucks versus the Hardys. Caprice Coleman joins the crew on commentary, and he added a lot to this. He always adds a really great element to commentary, being an AEW or ROH, and mentions the fact that they acknowledge the history with Ring of Honor since they obviously like bought them out and stuff and they split the matches in Ring of Honor one and one and this is all before they went back to WWE in 2017 huge pop for the Hardys the Young Bucks out here rocking the Elvis gear which looked fantastic and they put a good bit of comedy here and there and the Young Bucks like the pace wise slowed down 
And more importantly, they did what they needed to do because this wasn't going to be a five-star classic like we've seen with these two in the past. This was simply a let's go ahead and play all the hits and make it an entertaining match. And I couldn't ask for more, to be honest with you. These two teams just went at it. A lot of really cool spots throughout. Jeff Hardy at one point gets laid out. Matt Hardy's isolated for a few minutes. The Bucks hit risky business for two. Matt turns the match around after basically some miscommunication. Where he just dodges some big knees. Brandon Cutler got laid the hell out with one. Like He basically went almost like five feet backwards after taking one to the dome. Then the Hardys start going at it. Matt hits Matt Jackson with a side effect on the apron. Jeff misses a swanton bomb. The Bucks start to really take over for a little while. It looks like the young Bucks are just going to absolutely destroy Jeff Hardy, but nope. Matt Hardy saves the day. Then Jeff Hardy hits a swanton bomb on the freaking steps. What the hell? Like, Matt and Jeff Hardy have a death wish, I think, at this point. We talk about, you know, your boy... You know, Ric Flair in his last match. This was the definition of like insanity, what they were doing in this match. Matt Hardy almost wins it for his team after a twist of fate. But then Jeff gets up on the top rope. It's another massive swanton, and the Hardys win the dream match. And in turn, the series, and maybe we get to see this match run back down the road. Holy hell, this ruled the bump card on the Hardy showed here. I'd give it three and a half links to boot in a really solid match. Crowd started to really get into stuff. Now we get to the TBS championship match. Anna Jay versus Jade Cargill. Jade first off uses the Cody Vader. The one first of two times they wound up using that. And I popped for it both times. It was great. Anna Jay used her speed to her advantage in the early going, but Cargill started to overpower her. Looked like she was trying for three amigos, but did a kip up after the after the first one. It was a little wonky, just the way it was set up. Not necessarily dangerous, just looked a little weird. Big superplex by Anna J resets the match. Anna can't capitalize because he's already been beaten down for a good bit of the contest. Really good back and forth between these two. Jade didn't go down for a second at one point in the match. Then you get Anna Jay hitting a blockbuster off the top rope. She gets out the ring. The batty section runs interference, but Anna winds up hitting a double DDT on both of them. She gets back to the ring. ring. Jade lands a massive pump kick for her efforts on eliminating the two women. Anna Jay tries to hit the glam slam for two, and then Jay reverses it into a two count, hits a super kick. Sterling runs out, tries to interfere on... Jade's behalf doesn't work. It's backfires. John Silver runs in and drops Sterling with one of those brutal-looking brain busters I've seen in a while. Rough night for the lawyer. I have stormed by Jade for two. And then Jade counters into the Queen Slayer almost like right after. But Jade gets out of it because she's just way too powerful. Then we see the two... Women go up on the rope. Stokely Hathaway shows up. And right when he showed up, I'm like, oh my God, I cannot wait for this. Stokely Hathaway absolutely rules. Love them a little more in the indies as much. I wish I loved them more in NXT, but didn't have nearly enough time and couldn't nearly get over compared to what he had potential to. And like Tony Giovanni saw about the fact that he hasn't seen, seen him uh, 
Stokely Hathaway since 2017 in MLW. And then JR's like, oh, I've never seen Stokely, which popped me like crazy. Then it sets up Jay to the t- second rope grand glam slam, excuse me. And that helps her get the win. Fantastic finish to the match. She actually was able to land the second rope glam slam. Three legs of booty, a little bit too overbooked for my liking. That's my big thing. Chris Statlander runs in to save Anna Jay from getting beaten down even more. And then Athena, the former Ember Moon, comes out to even the odds. Post-match angle was great with two straight debuts. And now we get more women's wrestling angles. Maybe a trios match with these two down the line. At least it's my hope. And hopefully we get to see Statlander versus Jade Cargill for the TBS championship. Because I think that's the direction they want to go. I think Statlander presents probably the biggest threat to her title reign based off of how they built her up over the last few weeks. Now we get to House of Black versus Death Triangle. Another great JR line here. At one point, he saw the House of Black and saying, we need a house psychologist. Death Triangle's entrance was great. Then we get to Death Triangle with Lucha Bros and Pac, and this ruled. Yet, mini Pentagon, his son, Really great stuff here. Pox rocking a, or Pack, whatever you want to call them, rocks a Jushin Thunder Liger-esque match, which, mask, which was great. All that ruled. Phoenix and Malachi opened up the match, and these two, phenomenal chemistry. I'd love to see these two one-on-one over and over again, whatever that time comes. They're going at it, and it is just absolutely like chaos not long after Penta tags in, and... Him and Buddy Matthews were going at it. Brody King and Pac wanted going for going at it for a while. Brody demolished Phoenix with an elbow in the midair. King wound up teasing a dies over the top rope, but Death Triangle and House of Black met him in the middle. We get a good old fashioned Donnie Brook hockey fight, whatever you want to call it. Got a hand real quick, and I love it. To be quite honest with you, six man tags if they don't go completely nuts to butts crazy, it's kind of tough for me to truly get into those. And this got out of hand. Absolute chaos. Triple combo by Death Triangle. King kicks out despite all three members of Death Triangle being on top of him. Love the fact they did try doing a stack finish on him. Everybody dives. Even Brody King did a over-the-top flip. But he wound up not necessarily being able to get all of it to where he got full clearance. Wound up landing on the apron somewhat. But looked brutal. Dante's Inferno on Ray Phoenix. But... Death Triangle breaks it up. Tiger Faint by Phoenix into Black Mass looked rough. Pack teases a Black Arrow, but Buddy interferes. And Pack hits a springboard 450 splash over Buddy Matthews. Absolutely ruled. Alex is talking trash, and Pack takes advantage with a low blow. And then goes up for the Black Arrow again. Lights go off. Lights come on. Julia Hart's in the ring and blows the mist into Pack's face again. To make him blind for like the 50th time. Black Mass for the win. Didn't need the her interference. This whole like thing should have been paid off weeks ago. But the fact that they did it for this match worked really well. Another great piece of storytelling for the House of Black. I'm giving this four links to Boudin. Damn near was a contender for match tonight. But at this point, this was. It's just the fact that the whole show, those first few matches were not stinkers by any means, but they just weren't as good as this one was. Men's Owen Hard Tournament Final, Adam Cole, Samoa Joe. We talk about the styles making fights all the time. Prime example of this. Mike Kyoto wound up being the ref for this match. Love seeing him back. Adam Cole's rocking the all-pink gear while 
Joe continues to rock the Masawa tribute with the black and green shorts. Joe looked dominant early on, landing tons of big strikes. One of those, he had a chop on Cole, rough. Match goes to the outside. Cole turns the momentum around, as you might expect. But damn, like the match shifted suddenly after this point where it was all about the arm and Joe selling the arm. And Adam Cole took full advantage of that and really started to roll things into his favor. Match goes back into the ring. Cole teased the Patent Mill Sunrise, but Joe counters and then hits the corner STO, but can't capitalize. We get a greatest hit spot, including the big boy Senton for two. Then he tries locking in an STF, doesn't get the win. Cole tries for the boom after Bobby Fish runs in and attacks Joe's arm, but Joe locked in the Kikina clutch shortly after. But let's go because Bobby Fish is going back out to the ring and causing all the problems. And that helps Cole capitalize with a bevy of super kicks and the boom for the win. Three and a half links to Budan. Damn good match between these two. Not a fan of the finish, but it's going to be an interesting story down the road between these two because I'm certain this is not over. I'm just kind of tired of how they booked the Owen Tournament Finals. They could have introduced a newer character and really start establishing that as one of these shows you should be watching on a Sunday. None of the episodes on Fox I've seen yet, but I feel like a lot of stuff they did was probably steal phrase from somebody who I used to deal with. And that is, you know, there's no way you can get things right on this end. Like it was, it was a mess to kind of have this set the way it was, where it's the winners are the people that are top stars instead of maybe building newer ones or further enhancing guys that maybe need that opportunity. And speaking of which we go to the women's Owen Hart tournament final. Ruby Soho versus Dr. Britt Baker, DMD. Rich Ward of Fozzie accompanies Baker playing the guitar, and at certain points, you really couldn't hear him. Then we get to Rancid. They play Ruby Soho out, which is a clear indicator that we're going to see Ruby Soho lose, which she does. It's a solid match. We get possibly the worst sharpshooters of all time on this card, and this is the first of many bad ones, and I mean god-awful. Britt Baker wins, countering the victory roll, and now it's the power couple of AEW that wins this tournament. Kind of predictable. But the match itself, three and a half leagues of boot air. My thing, though, is now we can officially say Ruby's done. Ruby Soho is pretty much in the same spot Ruby Riot was. Keeps getting those big pushes and then loses. Never winning the big one. This could have been your golden opportunity to put Ruby Soho over. You've given her opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. A year ago, less than a year ago, all out, she debuts and wins the Women's Battle Royal as the Joker. Then loses to Britt Baker a few days later. TBS Tournament. She makes it all the way to the finals. Looks great in a lot of those matches. Loses to Jade Cargill. In Jade Cargill, it made sense in the long run. She's still undefeated. That said, this one kind of sucks because now she's going to be treated like an afterthought in my mind after everything's all said and done. She's a great hand, but I think this is as far as she's going to go now that we see this go down. Ruby and Britt shake hands kind of after the match. 
Britt and Cole are on the entrance ramp. Martha Hart comes out to present the trophy and the championships, which were fantastic-looking championships, by the way. She had a great speech as well. The championship titles definitely had the homage to Stampede Wrestling, but also had like a mild reminder to me of the old WWE slash WWF tag team titles we'd see for a long time, just based off the rectangular design versus some of the other ones we get all the way around. Still not a fan of how that went. I think now we can just kind of consider Ruby Soho's run in AEW a abject failure in my book. Then we get to the six-man tag, a match I did not care about. I'm giving it three links to Boone. Fine stuff. Just didn't really care about it. Sammy and Ty used the Cody entrance. Ty's rocket a Maleficent gear, which looked great. Fun six-man tag. And towards the end of the match, Franklin Kazarian acts like he's leaving the match, but tags himself back in and hits a slingshot cutter for two. Sammy accidentally super kicks Ty after Frankie ducks, and then Kaz gets pinned by Sky after a TKO. I am glad this feud is finally over. We get to move the hell on, and maybe the TNT title can actually mean something again rather than, you know, the hot potato belt. So Kyle O'Reilly, Darby Allen. This was insane. We start off with Kyle O'Reilly. He hits a massive knee to start the match. After Darby tried to take it to the ground, and I'm talking one that rocked his stuff in, and more importantly, busted him wide open. Absolutely wild to see that. Darby got busted open for shoot, turned it around, big drop kick, and a code red for two. Darby locked in in front guillotine, then eventually turned it into a scorpion death drop. I don't know how he did that, but it worked. Darby throws Kyle to the outside. Darby goes for a tope suicida, but it looked like he botched it going in between the bottom, the middle and bottom ropes. And it was like a spinning wheel kick. And it just looked rough. It looked like he hurt himself. So we go from that into a really fun match. Darby does a suicide again. Suicide dive, excuse me. I'm going to go ahead and redo that part. But O'Reilly locks in a front face lock. JR at one point, he can't help himself to do the O, 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 O'Reilly. And we're going to end that because I'm sure I got seasons assisted for that. Coffin drop by Darby on the apron with O'Reilly on the ropes. Looked brutal. Then he tries it again. But he locks in a cross arm breaker. Darby turns that into a roll up for two. Series of strikes between the two, exchanging strikes. Kyle grabs the chain on Darby's neck. Then Kyle hits the PK three times and then a diving knee gets the win for the other member of the Undisputed Elite in action tonight. Four links to Boonan. Outside the House of Black match, this was the match of the night so far. As I'm kind of going through the notes live. Serena Deep, Thunder Rosa, this was tons of fun. Rosa had some fantastic gear paying tribute to the victims of that senseless shooting that happened last week in Texas at Uvalde, which the fact she had that and she's actually going to donate that to charity. Fantastic look for her. This was a really fun technical match. If you love this, that kind of stuff, this was what you were looking for. Rosa teased shattered dreams, but Deep moved out of the way. Top rope is just a gory special. That was a really cool spot I'd never seen before. 
Rose had a sloppy looking Northern Light suplex, but outside of that one spot, this was a banger. Fans started getting into it. It was hearing some women's wrestling chants here and there. D blocked in a stretch muffler. Rosa got out of it, started spamming the knee breakers, a la what we see with her, with Serena Deep. Rosa hits a Death Valley driver for about two and a half. Deep locks into figure four, and the two exchange slaps, and then they wind up rolling out of the ring. Deep tried to lock in the Serenity lock, couldn't get it fully. She had a big power bomb, and then rolled into a Texas Cloverleaf. The finish wound up being Rosa retaining after a superplex into a fire thunder driver, definitely reminiscent of you know what we see with Seth Rollins, where he's wrestle where he does one thing one night and then another the other night, and breaks it down. This the superplex into Falcon Arrow. We see it night in night out. This was kind of her variant, and it works really well. Four and a half links in Boudin, phenomenal women's showcase. Now we get to the match of the night in my book, and it's not because of the fact that it was technically sound; it was exactly what you expected anarchy in the arena with the blackpool combat club and lax versus the jericho appreciation society tremendous stuff here the js was dressed up as the backstreet boys the bcc and lax come out shield style and it immediately devolves into a brawl to the point where the cameras can't keep up and wild thing is still playing like they loop it they loop Wild Thing, and it's like, my God. At one point, Jericho finally kills Wild Thing, just uh, unplugs the soundboard, which was wild in and of itself. Proud and powerful. Hit a nice double suplex. Then they hit Street Sweeper on Hager through two tables. Garcia drops Ortiz on the steps with a pile driver. Mox throws a damn ice chest in the face of Jericho. Garcia and Kingston are just brawling. In the concession merch area, everybody's starting to get busted open. And the Garcia-Kingston spot was definitely an homage to the Tupelo match that drew so much heat when they did it. And then they tried to run it back, which very much just killed the territory at that time. But the Tupelo concession stand gimmick, that's one of the more iconic moments in the old territory days. The Tupelo brawl like made big time. The concession stand brawl is one of the most iconic moments in wrestling history. If you've ever heard of it, go if you haven't heard of it, go check out the highlights. It is amazing. Everybody's bust open. Like Matt Menard may have been the worst one of them all. Like his face was completely drenched in blood. Moxley at one point is unscrewing the turnbuckle while like after getting locked into the figure four. Excuse me, Jericho got locked into the figure four by Moxley. Hager broke it up on the outside. Danielson busted open. Moxley starts unscrewing the turnbuckle and it screws like all but one. After they got to Kingston and Garcia, they continue to look like they're about to kill each other. Pride and powerful do damn near new Jack and spike Dudley style splashes. I wish it was off the balcony, but it was off the ladder. Still looked amazing. Max Hager, Jericho and Danielson all start teeing off on each other before Mox and Danielson start just hammering them with the elbows with basically a 12, six elbow. Then it's the LaBelle lock and Bulldog choke. They don't tap. And then Kingston comes out. He looks like he is literally about to die. He's busted open, walking around like a zombie. His eyes roll in the back of his head. Has a can of gasoline. Like, seriously, a can of freaking gasoline. And starts pouring it. Pouring it onto Chris Jericho. That was the most insane crap I've ever seen he pours over, over Dan Danielson, too. Damn near burns Jericho alive. 
Danielson slaps him and stops him. And then we get to see these two brawl for like a few minutes. Then Hager pushes Mox into the barbed wire. The table doesn't break. That was on top of it. Jericho hits a Judas effect on Kingston. And then Danielson gets destroyed with the turnbuckle for two. Danielson fights back and unloads on Hager and Jericho with Busaiku knees. Hits one with Jericho while he holds the chair for 2.999. Danielson starts to kick his head in. And just as he's about to start the violence party, Jer- uh, Hager hits him with Floyd. Jericho and Hager force Danielson to tap out. This was car crash wrestling. And as somebody who loves that kind of crap, give me a five links of Buddha type of match. Fantastic stuff here. Absolutely one of the highlights of the show. Andrade pre-tape. We get to see him just basically go full Hank Hill when he she when he's talking to Peggy after she lost the boggle match in the tournament. Loser. These guys are a bunch of losers. And basically says he has a new contract for a new member of his group, and it's Roosh. You want to talk about wrestlers who don't want to lose? You want to talk about website clicks for wrestling headline places like Wrestling Inc. and Ringside News? Oh, excuse me. We're not going to talk about Ringside News. Those pricks. So, that alone, holy bleep, was that amazing. That entire thing where he's just calling a bunch of losers and unveils Roosh. Trust me, it's going to be interesting with AEW considering what we just went through with MGF. Adding Roosh, going to be a lot of fun to see if he actually does a job. Either that or he goes, no, yeah, and then that thing kind of ends quickly. But we get a potential Los Ingobernables. Give me this, please. Please, I'm begging you. American Top Team have a backstage interview, and they officially say they're moving on to bigger and better things. I cannot wait. Dante Martin comes out, calls his shot for the TNT title, and looks like we're getting it next week in SoCal. Should be a really fun match. The co-main event was the AEW Tag Team Championship match with Jurassic Express defending against Team Taz and Swerve in our glory. And a lot like the last one they had a revolution, this was absolutely bat bleep crazy, start to finish, chaotic stuff. Very hard to keep tabs on everything they did. You wound up having, you know, Swerve and Keith Lee almost win after the Swerve in our glory finish, which looked fantastic. But Hobbs broke it up. Starks hit Lee with the FDW title. Almost did the same to Jungle Boy, but Cage saved the day. He saved the day a couple times. And then Jurassic Express survived by the skin of their damn teeth in a really fun match. Way better than I probably expected. Four and a half links of Boudin here. And I'll, I'll say this. I was disappointed more about the fact that we don't get to see Christian turn heel yet. I need a Christian heel run like very soon. I'm getting tired of Jungle Boy just losing week in and week out. Once they lose those tag titles to FTR, please give us FTR Jurassic Express very soon. I think that's the direction they'll wind up going. I would love to see that. Now we get to the AEW Championship match, the main event, Hangman Adam Page, CM Punk, probably one of the most highly anticipated main events in AEW history because I think we all kind of knew the direction this was going to go. Crowd is split 50-50. Page and Punk just brawl in the corner early on. Then we get some classic collar and elbow tie-up. Basic you know, storytelling with the shoulder exchanges, shoulder tackle exchanges. Then they start chopping the hell out of each other. It's a war with everybody wanting to get their finish in. Hangman teases the buckshot lariat. Punk knocks him off the apron. Page with a pop of power bomb on the apron. 
tries for a top rope moonsault. Punk gets back in the ring and avoids that. Page is a top rope clothesline for two. Page throws him out, and that splat on Punk looked rough. At one point, we get a vintage Punk with the running knee in the corner and into the Bulldog. Springboard clothesline. Punk teases a sharpshooter and then a GTS, but Page gets out of that again. Twisting neck breaker for two. Page finally hits the moonsault, but looked like he may have hurt his leg in the process, which played a big part in the story about why he could hit the buckshot lariat. Speaking of that, CM Punk needs to not ever do that move again. He could not do that at all. Page tried to hit the GTS, but Punk countered, tried to hit a sharpshooter again. God, sharpshooters, they need to learn how to do the damn move because I feel like nobody did it right at all. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter because you wound up having Page damn near win the match with two straight 2.9 to 9 with a last ride into Dead Eye, then followed that up with a GTS. Punk kicks out last second. Strike exchange sequence. Page wins that with a big boot, but he's limping after some big strikes. Punk's thrown over the timekeeper's table. Page tunes up the band. Punk tries to counter to GTS, but Paul Turner's laid out. Page hits a big Larry, but not the buckshot. No ref in sight. Page all of a sudden focuses in on the AEW title, and he's looking at the belt with the intention of using it as a weapon while the ref's down. But he is conflicted, has a change of heart very last second, which was a great moment, and that finish was perfect. He decides not to use it. Punk hits the GTS and is the new AEW champion. Yes. I Full disclosure, I am a CM Punk mark. I will always be that way. I've always liked his stuff. This was a moment I've been waiting for for a while. And the fact we got it at double or nothing. Less than a year after the man joined the company. This was the perfect ending for a show that could have been better. It could have been better. It deserved a little bit better. I feel like the card was a little bit too heavy. Some of those matches could have been bumped to Dynamite, Rampage, and SoCal. But the ending, that's all that matters, right? We talk about it all the time. Nobody's really going to remember everything that happens on that show. That's why we have podcasts where I can kind of look at things and break it down from a critical perspective. And then down the road, I can listen to myself say this, or you can listen to me say all this stuff. And then go back and watch it. This was an example of why people remember more the main event and the final moments of a show. Seeing CM Punk, after all that he had went through the seven years away, and winning the title the way that he did was masterful. One of my favorite moments of wrestling this year, and will probably be one of my favorite wrestling moments in all of 2022 Outside of probably Wheeler Yuta winning again, or the John Moxley match against Wheeler Yuta, that was a masterclass of storytelling. But this hit different for me because, again, I'm a huge CM Punk fan. I figured he would win, but at the end of the day, this was a moment in time where AEW had a million dollar gate. And they had one of the best endings to an AEW show outside of full gear last year. This was 
one of the crowning moments. Now, what happens next with AEW? Do they turn Punk heel? Do they have Adam Page be vindicated and we see him chase to potentially win a second title? I don't know. I'm not going to try and armchair book this too much, but I feel like this is the direction AEW is going to go. But that's about all I got for this week's podcast. We'll be back next week. Hell in a Cell, NXT in your house. I want to say takeover, but it's not a takeover. Plus, whatever else is going on with MGF and all the other stuff going on in the world of pro wrestling. What gets all of it. So enjoy yourself and make sure you leave a five-star review and go ahead and subscribe to the podcast however you do so. Be it through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you go to get that. Also, follow us on social media as well. We're on Twitter, at CajunStrongPod. Until then, take it easy.